Welcome to the third and final episode of Radio Around the World, brought to you by Common Ground Berlin and Goethe Institute. I'm your host, Soraya Sarhadi Nelson. Today we hear from an American radio star as well as an Afghan journalist who was part of an on-air project to win hearts and minds. But first, our American icon. Anyone who listens to the American network NPR will have heard Mary Louise Kelly, The All Things Considered host tackles her on-air interviews with gusto, but also loves to have fun, like in this tale about a computer program translating human voices into birdsong. I like it. Okay, I'll try. If I say, I'm Mary Louise Kelly, and I also host All Things Considered, it would sound like... Charming, but it might make it maybe a little too hard to parse the daily news. Our audio series with Goethe Institute commemorates a century of German radio. And as it turns out, the 52-year-old Kelly's first appearance actually was in Germany. Where I am from is slightly more complicated. I was actually born in a U.S. Army field hospital in Augsburg. My dad was drafted during the Vietnam War into the U.S. Army. My parents are both American. um, And he was lucky enough to get assigned to Army intelligence and stationed in Augsburg instead of getting shipped out to Vietnam. So my mom went over with him and I was born there and grew up always going back to Germany. My parents loved it, made great friends, and we uh, grew up going back to visit them all during my childhood. What role did radio play in your childhood? Was it a medium that was important to your family? To be perfectly honest, my major childhood memories of radio are probably listening to music on the FM dial. That would have been the 70s and 80s growing up in Georgia. So there was a lot of music that my parents would then go home and listen to on 8-track tapes and then eventually records. So that's my first memories. I can put my finger on the first time I had a driveway moment, meaning I was so engrossed in a story that even though I was all the way home and ready to get out of the car and go inside, I sat there in my driveway because I couldn't bear not to hear the end of it. And I was in high school and it was an NPR story. And I can't remember the full gist of it, but I remember it was about chess. And the reason I remember is I was not interested in chess. I didn't care about chess. I was not a chess player. I knew the basics, but that was about it. But something about the storytelling and the voice and the warmth drew me in. And I found there was no force on earth that could drag me out of my car and not hear whatever the rousing climax of this story was on chess. And I remember thinking about that. And it was the first time I really thought about radio as a way to tell a story because I'm a writer. I'm drawn to print. I love to type. I write books. I write articles, all the rest. And um, it was the first time just the power of a voice from somebody I would never see and never meet, didn't know what they looked like, touched me. And I thought, huh, that might be interesting. And it took me a while to circle back, but here I am. Do your children listen to radio? They do. They are teenagers, so they are very much of the on-demand generation where they're more into 
podcasts or apps that are steering them to the stories that they're interested in. And we have back and forths on this because I am an anchor of a two-hour traditional daily news magazine show where you're going to listen to what we put on air at that moment, whether it interests you or not, whether it's about chess and you thought you needed a story on chess that day or not. I get that the future of how we consume news and stories is probably much closer to the model that my children have grown up with. You get to listen to what you want when you want to listen to it, and they certainly do. I do think, and I have this discussion with them, something is lost in that because I would never have had that chess moment. I would have never have clicked on the chess podcast. I didn't think I needed to hear it. But I learned something from it that I can remember. Here we are, I don't know, 35, 40 years later. And um, the power of good writing and a strong voice to reach you and make you care about something you didn't know that you cared about is something that traditional broadcast radio is able to do. Like me, you started your journalism career as a print reporter. Why did you make the switch to radio? It was a combination of practicality and interest. On the practicality side, I was finishing grad school in England, coming out of Cambridge with a degree in European politics. I knew I wanted to be a foreign correspondent. I knew my boyfriend was British and we were trying to figure out how to get work permits to stay on the same side of the Atlantic at the same time when we weren't married. And so I was applying everywhere uh, to newspapers, to print, TV, to radio, all over the place. And the job offer that came through was from the BBC World Service, which was opening an office in Boston to try to bring uh, their international news reporting and stories to the U.S. And so they were willing to hire an American. I started with them in the U.S., subsequently moved to the U.K., but it was my way in. I don't know in full honesty that I was looking for broadcasting. I was looking for a job in news that would let me travel and see the world and tell stories. But once I got into it, and it was hard <laughs> learning to write for radio. It's very different than writing for print. It's so driven by the voice and by the tape. And you have to trust that people will hear the emotion in someone's voice or hear the pause as someone stops to think about something. But once I got used to it and learned how effective it could be to try to recreate those same driveway moments for other people around America and around the world who were listening to my reports, I loved it. And I have continued to write for print because that's valuable in different ways. But sometimes I'll hear a story and just think, oh, this is a radio story. Clearly, let me get out my recorder. Well, it's three-dimensional storytelling is the way I refer to it. Is it like that for you? Do you sort of feel like you can add layers that you couldn't possibly do when you write? I can let the emotion in someone else's voice drive a story. I can let the sounds of when I pull up somewhere to start reporting, let them draw you in as they're drawing me in. And that's one of my favorite ways to tell a story on radio is just let me take you along for the day. Here's what we saw. Here's what we heard. Listen with me as we go. And you're uncovering things as I'm uncovering them. And we're on that discovery together. If you are someone who loves words, as I do, I find radio the most powerful medium, even more so than print in the sense that the words are all you've got. In print, you can have a picture, you can have a graph, you can have a chart. If people get lost in the story, they can go back up three paragraphs and pick it back up and see what they missed. In radio, it's gone. Um, you can't rewind 
uh, a live broadcast 30 seconds and go back. So you have to keep tugging people along word by word by word. And people, when they meet me, who've heard my voice for years here on NPR, inevitably say, oh, you don't look at all like I thought you would. You're older or younger, or taller or shorter, or thinner, fatter, whatever it is. And I always say, well, I look the way you need me to be. <laughs> you know, It doesn't matter what I look like in real life. All you know is that voice and you feel like you know me so well that it's a total surprise to see what I actually look like and put a face with it. And I love that. Every single voice you hear that you feel you know, we look however you need us to look in your own mind. And that's a powerful thing. You've written a number of books, including your memoir, It Goes So Fast, The Year of No Do-Overs. In it, you discuss losing much of your hearing and the impact that's had on your life. How does hearing loss affect the way you do radio? Well, it makes it harder. It makes everything harder, as you can imagine. I have severe to profound hearing loss in both ears. I'm talking to you now wearing hearing aids. I anchor the national news every evening wearing hearing aids. And that would present challenges in any line of work, certainly in a job where my role is to ask questions and then listen to your answers so that I can follow up and push you for more information. Um, It makes it harder. I mean, number one, I'm profoundly grateful for the technology and the help I've gotten from audiologists and from my team who have found various workarounds in the studio broadcasting the news. It is not a problem, which is counterintuitive, but... Our studios are professionally broadcast. They are pen drop silent. There is no background distracting noise. I have professional headphones on that I can crank loud. So that all works. In the field, interviewing people in the middle of a protest or a rally or a a noisy restaurant presents challenges. And I've figured out various workarounds um, and continue doing so. And luckily, the technology keeps advancing and advancing and keeping just one step ahead so that so far, uh, knock on something wooden, I am able to continue doing my job. Do you still listen to radio now that you have this hearing loss? And as you mentioned, uh, you know, the technology keeps up, but it still requires a sense that you are having issues with. Yeah. The thing about hearing loss um, that people who don't have it don't always totally understand. It's not like eyesight, where if you need glasses, you can get glasses, you can put them on, and you can see the world snaps into sharp focus. With hearing loss, I can wear my hearing aids, which are the best that money can buy. They can be perfectly adjusted. I still really struggle. Having a conversation like this right now is a lot of work. It's hard. And part of that is hearing aids can make things louder. My specific form of hearing loss does have to do with volume, but it also has to do with inability to distinguish between consonants. And so if I can't see someone's lips moving, or if I don't know the context, if I don't know the next question you're going to ask me, which I don't, then I'm struggling and I always feel three or four words behind trying to figure out based on the context, what did you likely just say? And I'm catching up and you're going on to the next question or your next point. I mention all of that because it means that listening is hard for me. I obviously do it. (laughs) I love it. It's my job, but it's work. And at the end of the day, when my colleagues are going for a walk and listening to a podcast or cooking dinner and listening to radio, I find it much easier to read a book or to read a story because I can see the words. They make perfect sense as I'm reading them, as they do to anyone else. Whereas if I'm listening to that, 
I'm playing catch up and I'm working and it's exhausting. And at the end of a long day of doing that all day <laughs> for NPR, it's sometimes not exactly what I feel like doing. Well, let's move to another area of discomfort, and that is difficult interviews. The Mike Pompeo one comes to my mind, but for you in your long and distinguished career, who was your most difficult interviewee and why? That is a wide sea in which we could swim for a while. There have been a lot of interviews that are difficult for all kinds of reasons, some of them just because your heart is breaking. You're talking to someone you know, an ordinary person who, if a producer has summoned them to the phone to talk to me, it may well be because they're having the worst day of their life, you know, because a a shooter has just walked into their kid's school or a hurricane has just flattened their house or Russian tanks have just rolled into their village. And so trying to find the right balance of asking probing questions so that I can bring that story to my listeners and audience and make sure they understand what is happening and why we need to care versus respecting somebody's privacy in the middle of what, as I say, is often a horrible situation. Those can be really tough interviews. And often I will hold it together as we're doing the interview, and then I'll stand up and just say, I need a second. Um, And I'll come back and sit at my desk and just cry because I feel those conversations so deeply. On the newsmaker front, um, the interview I did with Mike Pompeo is famous, but I'll I'll actually point to a, a somewhat more recent one with his counterpart that I did this year. This was with the foreign minister of Iran, whose name is Hussein Amir Abdelhian, and we were in Tehran. Uh, we were the first U.S. journalists to be given visas to go into Iran for several months. Iran had been profoundly destabilized by anti-regime protests, and the foreign minister was a senior member of his government, and I had all kinds of questions about what was happening with these protests, why journalists were not being allowed to cover them, why people were uh, being arrested, why ordinary Iranians were so terrified to speak to me. Um, You know, we'd be trying to interview people, and people would didn't want to be interviewed by name, didn't want to be identified with a photograph, would point up and point out cameras and say they're watching, they're listening. And we wanted to put all of that to him. We were in Iran and the interview was being done uh, through an interpreter because he was speaking Farsi and I was speaking English. And they tried to set a bunch of ground rules that we could not edit anything he said. So the whole thing was fraught from start to finish and was a very contentious interview. And trying to navigate what to ask, how hard to push, how quickly to interrupt, (laughs) not wanting to be arrested, (laughs) Um, all of those things, trying to figure out how do I explain what all of these subtexts are to an audience back in America listening, who may or may not be completely up to speed on what the situation is in Iran. Um, And we were doing it all on deadline and trying to turn it very fast for that night. And it kept getting delayed. So the clock was ticking. So we had less and less time to pull all of this off. It was a challenge, um, but it was also absolutely fascinating and uh, ended up going for about twice as long as they had told us was the absolute limit he would give us. And then we raced back to the hotel and started writing and flipping and translating and uh, editing for air. And it was contentious for days afterward as they challenged the interpretation of it, which was their interpreter and everything else. So that was um, 
that was a moment where you sit there and think, this could go horribly wrong in all kinds of ways, and I can't think about any of that. I just need to think about what are the three, maybe four key questions I really want an answer to, and that I'm going to have to push him on, and I'm going to have to have all kinds of information and facts at my disposal to push him so that if he tries to dodge this question, I'm ready to push back. That was Mary Louise Kelly, co-host of NPR's All Things Considered, which premiered in 1971 as the Public Radio Network's first news program. You can hear All Things Considered weekdays on NPR stations across the United States or stream it on the Internet. Radio Around the World is brought to you by the Goethe Institute. Thank you to all of our friends and partners for making this series possible. My next interview is with Kamal Nasser Hamyar. The 40-year-old journalist hails from the northeastern Afghan province of Badakhshan, and he was part of an international radio project aimed at his homeland. After the United States ousted the Taliban from power in 2001, radio proved to be an effective tool to win over listeners in Afghanistan, where oppression and illiteracy bred deep distrust. Germany helped create the radio network called Sadaya Azadi, or Sound of Freedom, in Afghanistan. It was later renamed Radio Bayon. I spoke with Kamal about the network, as well as his life in Afghanistan and the role radio played. When I started working with uh, radio in Afghanistan, so the media platform was uh, something new for us. Not only for me, but for the whole uh, country, for the nation. After a long period of being away from media, so it was really, really a good platform for us to messaging our nation and messaging the people in different parts uh, of community. So when you were younger, though, when you were a child, a teenager at that time, was there radio in Afghanistan? Yes, it was, but uh, it was not like uh, something in FM. It was only one radio all over Afghanistan, so it was broadcasting in our Um, native languages. So I was understanding the importance of radio for a country like Afghanistan because uh, the country which is facing lack of or shortage of electricity that the people were not able to have a TV or something else. So radio was the only channel that the people would be receiving news, entertainment and other things. When you were in your house with your family, did you listen to radio in Badakhshan? Uh, absolutely. When I was a kid, my father, who was a little bit educated, and he was a previous uh, government employee, he always, when he was uh, coming at uh, 6 o'clock in the evening and very early in the morning, he was listening to the news. So it was news. Did you listen to music on the radio or were there programs, other programs? The radios we were listening since I was a kid, it was not something for the local. It was an international uh, uh, radio stations, which were broadcasting for the Persians, for the Farsi speakers. Uh, during the day, we had some uh, kind of uh, entertainment. It's called Ginao. It was... It was really entertaining, you know. So like new house, new life. Exactly. This is this in English, yes. New house, new life. So how did you come to be at Sadaya Azadi and Radio Bayon? Well, uh, before I start with Sadaya Azadi, I worked for one and a half year in Afghanistan radio television. So I was a member of the international news desks for radio television of Afghanistan. And 
beside of my uh, political science uh, educations i had uh, <clears throat> let's say it's not a real scholarship but it was it was a project which was funded by dechavela academy in afghanistan in radio television of afghanistan and we were a group of people who were eligible and we were trained for eight months journalism in radio television of afghanistan or rta <laughs> And our trainer was German, and they trained us in English. So the team we were working for the international news desks of RTA, so it was a professional team. It was trained very well. So they all know English. They had good, uh, you know, kind of knowledge of the native languages in Afghanistan. So we were the first groups producing news for radio television of Afghanistan. It was all uh, about international news from different news agencies. And we produce it in Dari and Pashto for Afghan nation. So before I started with Sadai Azadi, I was working, it was a background for the, my journalism experiences. And it's related to your questions that how I come to the, the journalism to work here, because I had this training. And then uh, I left uh, Radio Television of Afghanistan in Kabul and went back to Badakhshan, my province. Uh, I worked with other international organizations for a few months and then I joined Radio Sadai Azadi from Badakhshan. Beside the radio they had also uh, newspapers so we were producing some you know articles for the newspapers but later on I start to work with radio. And what did you do on radio? Were you reading the news or were you uh, doing being a disc jockey or what, what was your job? When I was in Badakhshan so we were producing uh, different and various topics. It was culture, it was developments, it was supporting civil societies, it was uh, also educations. So during that time the German uh, government or let's say part of NATO we had PRT or professional reconstruction team in each province. It's not each provinces, but partially. So one of the PRT was based in Faisabad, the central of the province. And I was as a reporter from the province, reporting for Sadai Azadi in uh, Kabul. We were covering cultures, history, developments, civil society, education, women and girls' rights. And did the signal go everywhere in Badakhshan? I mean, was it throughout the province? Um, not all over the province, but in the center of the province, yes. Even the uh, neighbor villages to the center. So it has a good impact because people were listening it because of having different, uh, let's say, it has newses, entertainments, musics, and other program as well. Did people respect it? I mean, or were they suspicious because NATO was running this, you know, radio station or funding this radio station? Did people like it or were they suspicious? Well, um, it depends to the areas. Uh, as far as I worked for Sadai Azadi for almost two years in Banakshan, uh, I didn't have that feeling. At the beginning, yes, people was a little bit thinking a little bit different that it's something belongs to foreigners, it's something belongs to other countries. But basically, the products were broadcasting through the channel. It was convincing people 
So later on, after uh, 2010 and 2012 and 2013, when I back to Banakshana, I see a different uh, perspectives or a different understanding of the people, what they were hearing from radio. And the good thing for Sadai Azadi, it was the frequencies was very easily accessed to people listening from vehicles from their you know cars and sometimes even I had uh, listened my reports through uh, sitting in a taxi and it was something different feelings as well did people recognize your voice let's say if you took a taxi or like <coughs> oh we know you we've heard you on the air not generally but some yeah because uh, Faizabad is not a big city it's covered by mountains and a river and to divide it by two parts but uh, yes uh, based on my backgrounds so yes but basically due to security issues we all the time were said that please avoid to tell or introduce yourselves that you're working for NATO and sometimes Sadai Azadi was mixed with another name was together so people were not you know understanding the differences between two names Sadai Azadi it was some other radio station as well so Radio Azadi instead of Radio Azadi and Sadai yes, Azadi. Right, so okay. people was not uh, too much, you know, to understand or separate it. It's something different. But it was a good coverage as well for us. So then you came back to Kabul, though, to work for Radio Bayan? Absolutely. I uh, Even when it was uh, Radio Bayan, I moved to Kabul. So the, the position I worked for Radio Azadi in Badakhshan was uh, finished. It's kind of organizational decisions. And they asked me to join them in Kabul. But before I joined to uh, Radio Sadai Azadi, they selected me as a TV journalist because beside of radio magazines so we also had a tv production let's say so because the tv production or the tv section was producing messages in order to support the afghan national armies and militaries and so on and i worked for almost one year with tv and then i moved to uh, radio bayan and what did you do for radio bayan at the beginning, when I start, I was uh, producing cultural uh, packages uh, for radio. I introduced it many, many uh, historical places of cobbles for the nations. So my packages was part of a show. So it was broadcasting through a show. And later on, so the, the management decided to keep me as a coordinator and supportive to the chief editors for the radio in Kabul. So you weren't on air anymore? Uh, I did uh, reading news, I read packages, and I was uh, hosting guests for the shoes, different things, and then they said, yeah, so we need you to coordinate the whole radio with us. So, Because mainly our colleagues were internationals, and so from Afghan side, I was summoned to lead the radio together with my international colleagues. So when did you stop working for Radio Bayan? Uh, I stopped working with Radio Bayan um, December 2016. And I ended my journey with radio. I was a little bit interested to work for the Afghan government. So I joined the presidential palace and I work as a chief of staff for the senior advisory of president on United Nations Affairs. And I continued there for one and a half year, and then I left 
I couldn't find myself in an area like presidential palace, which is full of politics and playing in games. And then I decided that it's better for my careers to before something happened to leave it. And then I, uh, I leave the palace and then I joined to the independent elections as a advisors to the chairwomen of the IEC or Independent Election Commission of Afghanistan. So it was continuing up to the 2019 election. And then I lived as well there. And then recently before the Taliban came, I was an advisor to the Ministry of Peace and I worked there almost for eight months. Ministry the of Peace. Previous, yeah, Ministry yeah. of Peace, yeah. And then what happened? The Taliban came and it was so fast, it happened so fast? Absolutely. Uh, we had two meetings with the minister together with uh, some uh, other government entities. We had these peace consuls, which was leading by Dr. Abdullah Abdullah. So we had two meetings in the afternoons. We were preparing ourselves for the meeting together in the ministry office. So it was around 11 o'clock or something. Then we heard some kind of gangs, shooting and things like that. And then actually we were in a place or we were in a ministry which we were facilitating all peace negotiations, but we were not aware what's coming. And it was a big shock. And it was around 12 that everyone left offices, especially the high people who work for those different positions in the ministries, deputies, you know, uh, directorates and advisors or lift. And the minister was in Doha and we received the call that you have to leave the office. So I left my laptop, everything, whatever I had in my desk. And my wife, she was a university lecturer. She has a master degree in Turkish literature and she was at the university. And then I called her and she was the same situations and we call everyone who were outside to come back home we were totally afraid we were scared and so we had no idea even until uh, the afternoon so we were not expecting having taliban to take all over the country especially the capital kabul and yeah, we all come back home and we stay at home. So what was the day when this it was, was the fifteenth uh, August? So you went sure. home and then what? And then we all stay and then I start connecting and communicating with other family friends. It, it was a day that most of the country was under Taliban control. I had no idea what to do. I have seen that the international forces were all in uh, Kabul airport. And I talked with friends to find a way that leave the country. And it was absolutely very, very dangerous. And even I, I, I couldn't, you know, think to, let's say, step away from my door. Uh, I, I just stay at home. So how did you get out of Afghanistan? Did the Germans evacuate you or who evacuated Yeah, for the evacuation, so I, I, I traced several sources, even with my American colleagues and other. And I stay for three months in Kabul. Three and months the, after the Taliban yeah, took over. Absolutely, and I was changing my locations. Um, so usually I was staying in basements and changing my houses. So staying with relatives, especially when it's dark during the night. And it was very difficult to walk on streets. Personally, for me, it was very tough because of 
my informations, my background, especially for NATO, for the presidential palace with the ministries and, and so on. So, Did you listen to radio or to TV to, I, to figure I, out what was going on? Absolutely. I was access to the internet. So I had internet at home and the whole day and night, I, so whenever I'm at home, so I just maybe, uh, let's say if it's not an exaggeration, hundreds, hundreds emails I was writing during the day to find a way to leave or to flee the country. So during these three months, I was uh, communicating because recently I had a project with the uh, German was uh, there was a media center in Mazari Sharif. I was a legion officer for them. And the contract was from the German military from Mazari Sharif. So uh, there was three military advisor for these media centers and I contact them. They were not in Afghanistan on that time. And then they said, so wait and we will keep you in list. And finally they did it. So you went to Kabul airport with your family? Yes. Um, it was an afternoon. It was 26th of November. So I had a laptop, I had my smartphones and whatever I had, which was connected in. Actually, I, uh, I had deleted everything I had on my smartphone and my laptop. Including and all of your radio stories, all, everything. All, all, everything, whatever I had. So it was, I feel that it's danger if they find it. So then I deleted all. And I gave my smartphones and my laptop to my wife. And we passed with some other families. They were accompanying us to the, uh, some, I think, to the second uh, gate. Second the, checkpoint at the airport. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. And we have seen Taliban there as well. So with long hair, with absolutely different. Was this a German flight or what kind of flight was? No, it was a private flight. Mm. Yeah. When I arrived in Pakistan, so because I had communicated with the GIZA, it was an organization which was facilitating all people who are eligible for receiving a um, immigration visa. So uh, I stay for 13 to 15 days, if I'm not wrong, in Islamabad. And we waited for our visa, for biometrics, for flights. And then we flee from Islamabad to Leipzig airport. And you ended up in Munich for in the refugee camp for six months? Yes, I stay with my family for six months in a camp. I'm very thankful for my German colleagues because uh, they also had a group for Afghans who flee from Afghanistan to Germany. And they had groups of volunteers helping them in terms of administrations, finding house, you know, processing all these documentations and paperwork here. And luckily, I had a man who worked for 10 years with the German Minister of Defense, but he was retired. So I found him through that group of uh, German soldiers who were supporting Afghans who were newly arrived in Germany. And I moved from camp last July to here, to, to, to this flat. So uh, July 2022. Exactly. Right. Yeah. And what do you do now? Do you still do radio work? No, for the first six months up to, let's say, th 10 months. So I waited for to start my German classes, German language classes. And I did study it and still I'm continuing to, to study to complete my German skills languages. 
and uh, in terms of my profession it's uh, this is what i feel but this is also a reality that it's not easy to go back to work for edus because it's not afghanistan it's germany germany has its own standards and uh, beside the standards of journalism so it's it could be not that much big deal but uh, in terms of doing something for a community the the knowledge and the skills of the language is the most important to do that work here do you miss doing radio absolutely what do I you do. miss about it well when i work for uh, radio bayan in kabul so it was a big community i was reaching out from one province to another provinces of afghanistan so i was listening to every individual packages or reports which we were receiving from different provinces of afghanistan so sometimes it was very tough sometimes it was very joyful and i learned a lot afghanistan is a traditional country but one part to another part is different yeah it was, it was so, absolutely different. so do you think radio was a really good way to bridge that gap to bridge all these divisions different languages different cultures different geographic locations was radio the best way in afghanistan you think absolutely. to bring people together absolutely because radio was a really really easy platform for our nations to access for informations and uh, the way we work for bayan it was not only news so we were even educating people we were messaging people that you have to stand with your kids with your daughters with your sisters mothers to be educated we were messaging our nations that how it is important for them to support their national forces uh, we were messaging that how bad taliban is for their kids futures how bad taliban are for their economies how bad they are for their educations and even we had service to have different uh, understanding of our audiences and we we had really you know sometimes surprising uh, feedbacks it was not lu it was not some other free media but the context of bayan was really promoting and educating peoples because afghanistan after long time having a broken systems a corrupted systems even we were educating people that how they can help the government in terms of not eradicating but reducing corruptions so what i believe yeah radio bayan was a good stage for educating for messaging peoples to direct them in the right way for their kids future for their country's future That was Kamal Nasser Hamyar, a former radio journalist from Afghanistan who lives outside Munich with his wife and two daughters. Radio Around the World is brought to you by the Goethe Institute. Thank you to all of our friends and partners for making this series possible. I'm Saraya Sarhadi Nelson and I hope you enjoyed Radio Around the World, our project with Goethe Institute. Common Ground Berlin's senior producer is Dina El-Sayed and our social media intern is Maya Ravlik. Our podcast is funded by a grant administered by the German Ministry for Economic Affairs and Climate Action. And our partners, in addition to Goethe Institute, are the German Marshall Fund of the United States and Checkpoint Charlie Foundation. All of our episodes are available wherever you get your podcasts, and you can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at CG Berlin Podcast.